following is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Welcome once again. We are so glad you're here, especially if you're a guest this morning. Some of you will know that we've been looking at the book of Acts through the fall season here on Sunday mornings. And this morning, we're going to jump forward a bit in the book and turn our attention to some of the conversion stories that we see in Acts over the next few weeks. We've kind of laid a foundation with the first four chapters. We're going to jump ahead a little bit and see how the gospel actually has an impact in people's lives. Acts, we've mentioned, is a book that tells us how the message of Christianity began to spread through the known world. It's a book that describes the beginnings of the Christian community. It's a book that starts small. It starts in a specific location with a small group of adherents. But as we follow along with the story, we see that in a matter of about 35 years after Christ had been crucified and raised from the dead, Christianity quickly expanded from its small beginnings in Jerusalem to reach out to the known world in the first century. It's like a seismic wave that begins in Jerusalem and it ripples out to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this is really what the story of Acts is all about. It's a story of how the gospel message reaches across cultures to offer forgiveness and restoration. And as you consider the fact that the gospel rippled throughout the entire world across cultural and geographical lines, it's interesting to step back and consider how unusual that is compared to other major world religions. Some of you might know that most world religions are quote-unquote stuck in the same location where they originated. Laman Sana, who was a professor of history at Yale University, wrote a book entitled, Whose Religion is Christianity? And in this book, he writes this, All major religions except Christianity are roughly near to where they started. For example... 96% of all Muslims live in the Middle East, North Africa, or South Asia. 88% of all Buddhists live in East Asia. 98% of Hindus live in India or South Asia. Christianity, 25% live in Central and South America and the Caribbean. 22% live in Africa. 15% live in Asia, a number that's rapidly expanding as we speak. 12% live in North America, and 20% live in Europe. Christianity is truly a worldwide religion, but it began as a small movement centered in Jerusalem, centered around the life and teachings and resurrection of Jesus. And in our passage this morning, we begin to see the gospel message ripple out from Jerusalem. It was actually persecution that drove believers away from Jerusalem. And as they were driven away from that great city because they were being persecuted, they took the good news message of God's forgiveness and reconciliation along with them. As they were pushed out, the gospel went out. It was actually persecution that grew the church. And as you survey church history, as you look at us through the centuries, that's almost always been the case. In fact, it was the great church father Tertullian living in the second century who said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church because when persecution comes, the gospel moves forward. And our passage this morning comes immediately after the, the, the first Christian was martyred. 
His name was Stephen. You can read his story in Acts chapter 7. And after he was martyred, the believers are pushed out of Jerusalem and the gospel message goes with them. And we see from our passage that this message finds the most unlikely people and brings them into the family of God and into the mission of Jesus. And as we read Acts chapter 8 this morning, I want you to consider what the difference is between Christianity and all the other major world religions, everything else that's on offer out there. What makes Christianity a truly worldwide religion while others are generally stuck in their region of origin? Think about that as we read Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. It's printed for you in your bulletin. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And Philip rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. Well, this is God's Word. He gives it to us because He loves us, and He wants us to know Him. I wonder if you could see any musical artist or band in concert in any city in the world what your perfect combination of artist and location would be. For me, it's fairly easy to answer. It's kind of like a dream bucket list item in my mind. I would love to see you two in concert in Dublin, Ireland. Seeing the best rock band ever in their hometown, it would just be amazing. I'm sure some of you feel the same way I do about you two, and I'm sure some of you would beg to differ on my assessment of who the best rock band in history is. But either way, we know the music of U2. It's hard to believe that U2 has been relevant and massively influential for the past four decades. I mean, Rolling Stone magazine has actually listed the top 50 U2 songs, and coming in at number two on that list is a song that was rattling around in my mind all week long as I looked at this passage from Acts 8. It's the song, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Song full of spiritual illusions, like many U2 songs often are. And when commenting on this song, Bono, the lead singer of U2, said that the music that really turns me on is either running toward God or running away from God. And in reflecting on this song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, Bono says it's an anthem of doubt more than faith. You know the words that ring throughout that song. 
asked Rachel if I would sing it for you this morning, but I'm going to refrain from doing that. But after singing of a quest, a spiritual search, he talks about climbing mountains and city walls, talks about kissing honey lips, reflecting on love and spiritual experiences. Bono's chorus rings out throughout the song, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. It's a song that reminds me of our passage this morning, a song about searching. And in our passage this morning, the topic of searching really stands out. On the one hand, we see a man searching for God. This Ethiopian man is in search for meaning and hope and truth. And on the other hand, we see God searching for this man. He actually sends Philip to the middle of nowhere in order to find him. And searching is really the theme of our passage. And it fits our experience because if you step back and consider your life for a minute, it's not a stretch to say that you and I are a people who are constantly searching. On our better days, on our better, more thoughtful days, we search for answers to big questions like, who am I? Or what is the purpose of life? Or why are things so messed up in this world? But even when we're not so thoughtful, on most days, we'd have to admit that we're searching for rest. We're searching for approval. We're searching for something to provide hope and peace and joy in our lives. We're on a search for significance and purpose. We are seekers. I wonder if you've ever considered that you're searching. Ever considered that there is something deep inside that feels like it's missing. And because of that, and because that's all of our story, it leads us to search. Think about it for a minute. In a crowd like this, many of us are searching for perfection, a perfect family, or a perfect resume, or a perfect reputation. Some of us are searching for comfort. This is where I normally search. Wanting just a little more square footage, or a little bit nicer car, or a little better vacation. I really would love to experience a little more comfort in my life. Some of us are searching for significance, maybe through a relationship or a job promotion, or simply by impressing our peers, having others look up to us. Most of us are searching for joy, sometimes searching in more healthy ways, like through connection with our spouse and our kids, but at other times, searching for joy in unhealthy ways, maybe through substances or sexual experiences. And I wonder if you've ever considered that our search for perfection and recognition and comfort and joy is really a way that we're quietly searching for God. What are you really wanting when you crave a perfect reputation or a more prestigious job or approval from your peers? What if what you were really craving was God's smile? To be in relationship, vibrant relationship with Him. Others of us are searching in a more explicit way. Those are all implicit. We never say we're doing those things. We think that if we just had the chance to examine all the evidence and weigh all the material, then we'd be sure of God's love. Or others of us, we work hard at being a good person and doing the right thing so that God will accept us. Or we've gotten stuck on the treadmill of religious duty, which we're prone to get stuck on, thinking that if we tend enough church activities and read our Bible enough and pray hard enough, then God will bring healing to our lives. And all the while, we're searching. We're searching for significance and meaning and purpose. But you know as well as I that searching can get tiring. 
It's tiring because we never seem to be completely satisfied. There's always something left missing. It's tiring because we're never quite sure we've done enough. It's tiring because most of us aren't even sure of what we're looking for. We're bored and we're apathetic. We're confused. And lots of us have grown cynical and we wish it was easier to find joy and fulfillment in life. In our passage this morning, it's all about this search for joy and fulfillment in life. In our passage, we see two characters on a search, two characters who still haven't found what they're looking for. In this text, we see a eunuch searching for God, and we see God searching for a eunuch. And we're going to consider this passage by looking at these two characters, by looking at how a eunuch is on, a, on the search for God, and then turning to see how God, more importantly, is on a search for the eunuch. So two headings this morning. First, let's consider a eunuch searching for God. The passage begins with a peculiar command given to Philip. Philip was a follower of Jesus, a deacon in the early church. He had recently been sent out to share good news of Jesus with people in the surrounding region of Jerusalem. So in fact, Philip takes the gospel to Samaria. Uh, the location just outside Jerusalem, and he gets an amazing response as he proclaims the gospel there in those cities and towns. And just before our passage this morning, he's in those cities and towns of Samaria having an impact. And then one day, as he's sharing this message, he receives a command from God to go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, this would likely have been a mysterious command to Philip. Why would he want to leave the cities and towns of Samaria to go to the desert? It makes completely no sense. Leaving a populated area for a desolate area. Leaving the many for what turns out to be the one. It doesn't seem like the best ministry strategy on the surface. But Philip, he's sensitive to the Spirit's leading, so he goes. And what does he find in the desert place? Well, we see in verse 27... There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of the Candace. Candace wasn't a name, it was a title. The Candace, who was queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now Philip goes and he finds this African man, a foreign dignitary who's traveling back to North Africa after worshiping in Jerusalem. And we can draw a few conclusions from uh, about this Ethiopian man, from the description that we get of him in our passage. Let's just start from the beginning. He was a long way from home, which means he had the ability and the resources to take months away from earning a living in order to travel. Would have been a luxury that very few people experienced in that day and age. Which makes sense because we read that he was influential and worked in the upper, upper levels of government in Ethiopia. He was in charge of all the treasure of the queen of Ethiopia. He was likely a man of great influence and wealth and prestige. And we know this because he had a personal chariot. That would have taken some wealth. And the ability to obtain a scroll. He was reading Isaiah. He had his own book. This was well before the printing press when it became popular to own these sort of items. It would have cost a lot of money to obtain a scroll in that day and age. Yet despite all of his influence and prestige and wealth, we also know that this man was searching. In verse 27, we see that he had come from Jerusalem to worship. This man is what's known in the New Testament as a God-fearer. 
He's a Gentile who believes in the God of Abraham. The characteristics of Abraham's God were so attractive to him when compared to the gods of his culture that these Gentiles decided to love and follow the God of Abraham. Yet they hadn't gone all in yet. They hadn't gone all in with Jewish rites of identification like circumcision. So this Ethiopian was a God-fearer. He was a non-Jew who traveled to Jerusalem to worship. He was searching for meaning and purpose and fulfillment. He was searching for God. And he was willing to go out of his way and spend lots of his own money in order to find God. And we also conclude from this passage that he was empty. The fact that he's spending time and effort and money to travel to Jerusalem to worship leads us to believe that he's trying to find fulfillment through his religious experience. There must have been something gnawing at this man's heart and soul to drive him to such lengths in order to search for something true. In fact, the more you know about this journey, the crazier it gets. Today, if you were to go online and map quest where this man was from in northern Africa to Jerusalem, which you can do, by the way, it would take 105 hours present day to drive with modern roads and ferries. It would take 105 hours. There was no such thing as modern roads and ferries in that day, as you know. So this trip would have taken months to complete. And this journey stands out even more when we see that this man was unclean. And here's what that means. The fact that he was a non-Jew meant that he was excluded from God's people, and even if he had wanted to join God's people, he couldn't because he was a eunuch, meaning that he had been physically altered, which was common for court officials in that day and age because they posed no threat with their children. They couldn't have children, so there was no threat to the throne. They couldn't seduce women, and their job basically became their life, so it was beneficial to the king and the queen, to have a court of eunuchs that kept them devoted to their work. And we can assume that this man had no family of his own. Like I said, a eunuch's a man who's been physically altered. And if you were to flip backwards in your Bible to the book of Deuteronomy, you would read in verse 1 of chapter 23 these words, No one whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So this man travels hundreds of miles months of his time at great expense to himself, and when he finally gets to Jerusalem to where he's going to worship the God of Abraham, he's got to stand outside the temple. He can't even go in. The doors are closed to him. Having visited Jerusalem, this man comes to realize he had no hope of joining God's people because of who he was. We also see that he was likely lonely. He was alone in the chariot making a long journey by himself. He likely had servants attending him, but he was lonely. He was found in a desert place that symbolizes in some way his lifestyle. He had no immediate family of his own. Isaiah even calls him a dry tree. He was in search of community. And the eunuch heads back home and he is disappointed. And this passage is showing us that you can climb all the way to the top. You can have religious experiences. You can have everything in the world with regard to prestige and wealth and honor and recognition, and you can still be empty. He tried the wealth and the prestige thing. He tried the religious thing. 
He searched all over and couldn't find the fulfillment and significance that he longed for. And it's at this point that we see God searching for the eunuch. Throughout this passage, we see that one of the main characters is someone who's in the background. He's mentioned in verses 26 and 29, and it's God himself who orchestrates this meeting between Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. God asks Philip to travel south to a desert region. The Spirit nudges Philip to go to the desert, and Philip, like we mentioned, was probably wondering, why in the world would I want to do that? But once Philip got to where he was going, once he got to the desert, he saw a chariot, and God asked Philip to go over and to join this chariot, which would have been strange. Philip obeyed, and he found an Ethiopian inside who was reading out loud, which is how people read an antiquity. They didn't read silently to themselves. They read out loud in that day and age. And he just so happens to be reading from Isaiah 53. Just so happens. Just so happens that Philip makes his way to the desert, sees a chariot with an Ethiopian man in it, reading Isaiah 53. And Philip asks him a question, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian had the humility to admit that he needed help in understanding because this is a difficult passage that he was reading. In fact, this chapter in Isaiah that speaks of a servant of the Lord, it's a very challenging passage in Judaism. This account of a servant, sometimes it sounds like the servant Isaiah speaks of is Israel. At other times, it sounds like Isaiah is speaking of himself when he talks about the servant. And still, sometimes it seems like Isaiah is speaking of a third person altogether, one who's going to come as a blameless person in order to suffer and die, to take the punishment of others. It's very puzzling for Judaism, this passage in Isaiah. And the Ethiopian wonders who Isaiah is talking about in this passage. Is Isaiah talking about Israel himself or someone else? And Philip suddenly understands why he was sent to the desert. And through Philip, God was searching for this Ethiopian, and Philip is able to share the good news about Jesus with this Ethiopian. We see in verse 35 that Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. He tells the Ethiopian that Isaiah is talking about Jesus, the suffering servant who came in order to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, the lamb who came to give his life so that you and I might be forgiven. Now, what if Philip, after discerning that this Ethiopian wanted to trust Jesus, had said, great, now you just need to do something else, like be circumcised. So glad you want to follow Jesus. Now you just got to do something else like follow a certain set of rules and regulations. Would that be good news for this man? That's likely what this eunuch heard in his visit to Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem and he heard of all the rules and regulations that he needed to follow, but he literally couldn't. It was impossible for him. He would have heard there was no room in God's family for a person like him. And if Philip had told this man that he now had to meet certain standards, it would have been more of what this eunuch had already heard. It wouldn't be good news at all. Because if you've got to meet certain standards or degrees of holiness for God to love you, great, Moses is your Savior. And he was a good man, but he's a horrible Savior. Instead, Philip gets to tell this Ethiopian about the real Savior, Jesus, He gets to tell him that Jesus plus nothing 
gets you in. And now you can be washed clean. So this Ethiopian man and Philip, they go down into the water. The Ethiopian man is baptized and he goes on his way rejoicing. And this isn't in the text, but you've got to think that this Ethiopian eunuch continues to read his scroll, the scroll that he has of Isaiah. And as he comes to chapter 56, which we read this morning, he would have read uh, what we heard from Cherie. When she said, no foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord should say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And the eunuch should not say, look, I am a dried up tree. For the Lord says this, for the eunuchs, I will give them a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will never be cut off. Can you imagine the Ethiopian reading that and finally being able to think, I have found what I've been looking for. God likes me. He likes me. He has made me a part of his family. And we could rightfully say that God could say the same thing. I finally found what I've been looking for. I have saved this Ethiopian. He knows my love and grace. And now he gets to be the one to move out to take that message of grace and love literally to the ends of the earth, northern Africa. And it was the church father Irenaeus who said, this man became the first missionary to Africa. We don't know if that's true or not, but this man takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. It wouldn't be surprising if he did. He would have been the perfect man for the job. Because those who are overwhelmed by God's love and inclusion normally make the best missionaries. We see something amazing in this passage, that it's God who seeks us. While we were in constant search in order to find meaning and significance in created things, the Creator Himself, the one who can truly satisfy us and make us whole, He comes searching for us. And it's what Christianity is all about. It's why Christianity is a religion that has moved across the known world. Christians worship a God who searches for lost people. And no one else has a God like that. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, says it this way. The founders of every major religion say, I'll show you how to find God. I'll show you how to find God. But Jesus comes and says, I am God who has come to find you. And here's an Ethiopian eunuch searching for significance and peace and comfort. And what he finds when he opens the Bible is a God who searches for him to give him the things that he longs for. God is the one who's willing to go out of his way to spend his life in order to find you. God is the one who comes to outsiders and makes it possible for them to find healing and community. God is the one who can make the unclean among us clean again. The one who comes to bring fulfillment and hope and healing to our lives. We see this clearly in Luke 15, one of my favorite chapters, often referred to as the lost and found department of the New Testament, where Jesus himself talks about how he searches for us. He says this, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. If we were to truly believe that God is on the search for us, that He has what we truly want, 
we just might be able to give up our frantic search for significance and purpose in created things, in comfort and beauty and power and prestige. Could it be possible that God is searching for you even this morning? What we're called to do is be willing to be found, and that takes a great degree of humility. It means that we've got to admit that we're the ones who are lost and incapable of finding our way back, but it also opens up the opportunity for us to be found by God Himself. And being found by God is what we truly want. It's the thing that will truly bring significance and fulfillment to our hearts and lives. And the good news for us this morning is that He is looking for you. So let me pray for us. Lord God, we are so thankful that you are a God who searches. You are one who goes out of your way, who leaves it all, who stops at nothing in order to find what you have lost. And we are sitting here this morning as testimonies of that love and grace. And we pray that as we come to celebrate your goodness to us at this table, that you would encourage our hearts and souls as we trust in Jesus more deeply. It's in his name we pray. Amen.